welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly, I'm the editor-at-large at Sports Pro. Very happy to be back with you once again. This week we're going to be looking at the Rugby World Cup, which started in Japan last Friday as we're talking We've got a chat with Alan Gilpin, who is the head of Rugby World Cup at World Rugby. Uh, that'll be coming up a bit later on. But first of all, I'm very happy to welcome back up to some extended absence, uh, the unofficial partner himself, former sports pro columnist Richard Gillis, host of the Unofficial Partner podcast. Hi, Richard. Hey there, Owen. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Richard. How are you? I'm all right. I'm enjoying the, uh, the initial kickoff for the rugby. Good stuff, good stuff. Um, now, most of the world rugby media are, of course, in Japan, so they're a little bit difficult for us to get to. You, Richard, are in Very, Brighton. very, very easy to get to. <laughs> it's, right, it's, in, my, it's, it's my calling card. You're in, you're in Brighton, which is a little bit nearer than Japan and a more helpful time zone, but equally helpfully for the purposes of, of kind of segueing into a discussion about Rugby World Cup 2019. Uh, was the scene of Japan's famous win over South Africa in the 2015 World Cup. Oh, I see um, what you did there. Yeah. How significant was that game, that result, to the kind of character of this tournament, the credibility of this tournament going in, do you think? I think it was very significant for Eddie Jones because it got him the England job, potentially. <laughs> um, that's probably being facetious, but it didn't do him any any harm. I think he said that himself this week, actually, that he... He doesn't think he would be the England coach if, if it hadn't been for that win. But anyway, yeah, maybe. Um, it was obviously the moment. It was fantastic. It was, you know, uh, I heard it the other day. Radio, um, the BBC ran a, a sort of thing on it about it, you know, looking back at it and that those last moments. And it was, you know, extraordinarily exciting. And it was a very, very rare moment in rugby where, you know, the so-called minnow beats um, one of the big teams, and that's the inherent problem of of rugby and the Rugby World Cup as a as a thing. In that there aren't many shocks, um, other than the sort of you know once you get to the later rounds. So that was a time when you thought, okay, well this is a this that made it all the more extraordinary. So that was that was brilliant. Now it also, I imagine, and this is this is complete supposition, but and this is the world rugby line would be it. You know, you segue from that story straight into hosting the Japan Rugby World Cup, and you know that the, the, the cause and effect sort of narrative cr- cracks in, and then you've got okay because of that game there was a huge rush to interest in rugby and all the stadia full. Now whether that, there's any or much truth in that, I don't know whether one game does that or has mm. that impact japan and rugby have go back a long way and it's it's a i think it's a really interesting you know and i'm really pro world rugby's decision to take the the, the event to to japan in terms of the brighton game i i wasn't there but i remember being in the town i i was shopping um <laughs> you know deep research but there was a real buzz about the place and 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 actually it took me by surprise because Brighton is not your your classic rugby town by any stretch of the imagination. It's not sort of, um, you know, you can go to Leicester or or go to some, you know, go uh, west into the uh, sort of Exeter or, you know, you look at Leicester or Northampton, all these places where rugby is is played and is, is a bit higher profile. Brighton isn't like that at all. But actually, it was a fantastic atmosphere in the town and the whole tournament took over for mm. that period of time which is what a, a major sports event you know as we know does and should do um, doesn't always but it certainly did then and so that was a sort of a, a, a real a, i say a real moment for rugby whether there's any you know i don't want to jump straight into the legacy question but it was a it was a nice moment it was a great party um and it was a really again an imaginative thing to do to host a, a match in brighton actually, because it wasn't yeah. an obvious place to, to do it. So, yeah. a hat, you know, hats off to rights holders. Rights holders get a lot of stick, don't they? It wasn't a shtick then, but um, yeah. they get a lot of uh, stuff thrown at them. But I think, you know, they're, when, they're, when they do stuff well, I think we should, we should say well done. Yeah, and it seems that they're, they're doing something quite well, at least from this distance with, um, 
with this year's tournament. I mean, as you say, and as I think the organisers have been at pains to say themselves, Japan has been a rugby nation of its type for, for quite a while. It was, it's, you know, there's been a team at every Rugby World Cup from Japan so far, and this tournament was awarded quite some time before uh, before the tournament in England started. I think it's about 10 years ago that, that they took this decision uh, to go kind of big nation, emerging nation in, in, in rugby terms with its next set of hosts. But well, the, counter, the counter argument to that, so Owen, as, we, as you know, you all know, and is, is that Japan is a, a smaller nation rugby wise, but commercially is a huge market mm. and um, compared to even some of the big, you know, rugby ones. So that's quite a, that's a, you know, an interesting balancing point that, that, get would play i mean compared to taking the world cup to new zealand for example which is a tiny commercial market yeah but, but an obvious you know historically all blacks home um whereas japan is you know you've got a you've got a whole lot of stuff going on there from a sports marketing perspective you know with the olympics obviously and you've got that whole sort of swing east story that, that mm. has been running for since sort of the middle of the decade so that was a you know a counterpoint to the to the you know, let's take it out into the to the sort of s- smaller backwaters. Yeah, absolutely, and it does an interesting thing in connecting New Zealand and, and Australia, both of which are kind of positioning themselves more commercially, you know, and economically more in relation to some of their nearer Asian neighbours than than countries in Europe where they share a language, but they are a very very long way away from. Um, what do you think is is going to define the next few weeks for you? What what how is this tournament shaping up commercially in, in your eyes? I think commercially all the things have been done, you know, so when you get to the tournament itself, the game takes precedent quite rightly and all the all the stuff that we talk about fade, should fade into the background. That, you know, that that all the the and there is a lot of commercial noise around this tournament and we might get to some of that in a minute. But the, mm-hmm. there's a I think during the actual moments, um the the game sort of is elevated and it's just this great party and that's that's how how it should be um now uh, having said that around the the you know there is a lot of people uh, you know in in on the brand side on marketing side who have spent considerable amounts of money on on rights either officially with via the you know world rugby or via the teams or whatever media sponsorships and there is a sort of race to try and stand out in that huge crowd. And that's where the creative teams come in. And that's where the sort of fun and games is to be had. So you can then, if you sort of go back six months, a year, 18 months, where, you know, at an advertising agency, a sports marketing consultancy, one of the big networks, you would have had a brainstorm meeting where the words <laughs> rugby, Japan, and our brand values, let's see what we can do. And then, you know, that's, we're seeing the outcome of those those meetings, those brainstorms. And I've been in a few of those and, and they are beyond parody, I assure you. <laughs> um, some of the cliches that come out of that. And, you know, that's where I think what we're seeing is, a you know, you can see that, oh, I, I know what they're going for there, you know, where... <laughs> <laughs> you could have that, yeah. you know. You you know what it's like. You sort of you look at some of the. I was looking at the O2 film, which was one of the early ones out the out the gate, just be, you know in the run up into the tournament, and you know beautifully produced. Um, the line between sort of uh, an homage to uh, you know samurai culture <laughs> and cultural appropriation is is wafer thin, I think, in these situations. But there's a, you know, they they threw the lot at it. And you can see, you know, going through some of the stuff that I've seen, um, you know, sumos there. You've got, you know, bits and bobs of again the the, the um, there's a bit of gaming and the sort of graphic arts stuff, which I think is quite interesting. But you can sort of see that sort of thing playing out now, yeah, um, in a way that you know these things take a surprisingly long period of time and because obviously the the battle is raging in the bits and bobs of of inventory around the game and they've got to stand out and that's where quite often you know the the creative story wins out and that's where brands 
win or lose and it's 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 interesting to see that sort of uh, that aspect because it's it yeah. just takes so long to, to do yeah that. i mean guinness inevitably have come out with with something quite distinctive and and have approached the story uh in a different way i think leaning less on some of the cultural shorthand and more on the actual story of, of rugby in in japan you know picking up on this women's team from from the late 80s is it yeah um in their in their advertising spots but just generally, I mean, as you say, you've been in those rooms at Havas and, and elsewhere where you're coming up with these kind of commercial campaigns. Where it's something that's this big, how conservative do all parties tend to be? You know, you, you think about the scale of distribution, you think about kind of uh, particularly some of, the, some of the collateral around games, immediately around games. It's very lowest common denominator. It's very or potentially very lowest common denominator in very quick shots. You know, yeah. is there much appetite for people to do anything that's interesting or are you just looking for the most obvious line straight out of the gate? Yeah, no, it's a good question because actually I, I, I throw in confused.com's ITV stuff. I really, I quite, I really like that. Um, mm. For the so, benefit you know, of sure an international it, audience, what are we looking at with that confused.com stuff? They're using some uh, terms, Japanese terms, and then applying them to rugby. And it's just done in a really nice way. I mean, you see it on YouTube. So... Um, you know, as you say, if you're outside of the UK and it's not on your uh, TV channel, it's a, it's a it's worth just picking up because I think there's it's a really nice. It starts with a nice thought, um, mm. which is what this is all about. So this is where the strategists earn their money, and they they your point about conservatives, you know, being a bit conservative is is really difficult to get beyond actually so one of the questions that you then get to is when okay well how it's like a bit like telling a joke and mm. when you talk to comedians about you know telling a joke it's all about how much context you have to give to make the joke funny so people can understand what you're talking about but also be on side enough to to be in the tent to understand what the what the joke is now the better jokes need less context yeah and, I'll leave the joke analogy to, to one side for a minute. But when you then look at big global companies who have bought the World Cup for um, to hit lots of different markets, one joke or one idea won't work in all of them unless you then, you know, it has to be pared down to such an extent that even, you know, the simplest message is, look, we are X um, and look, we're sponsoring rugby. And essentially, the the basic signal that's being sent is look, we're it's a it's the company where you keep type message that it's the media is the message, and it, you, we are big. This is a power signal. We are there's a world big World Cup going on, and we're associated with it. And look, you know, we have spent this money, and therefore you can trust us. Those are those are the very basic messages that are being sent. Obviously, not explicitly, but that's what quite a lot of sponsorship um decision making is is based on it's those you know that's what that's what advertising has been about all these years we advertise therefore we're powerful now when you then say right can we tell clever stuff that the rugby aficionado will understand and laugh at and and get a response from and feel warm towards whilst also bringing along the mass and in rugby mm. there is a massive huge lump of people who don't understand the, you know the, the game that's going to be that's very difficult and it and quite often it's those two objectives entertaining the the people inside the tent with being clever and you know knowing whilst also signaling to the to the people who have, wouldn't give rugby a second thought and are never going to turn up but they just what they need that signal it's really difficult and probably impossible. So you're yeah. always stuck between those two poles, and we've you know, and that's where you get that sort of global campaign, where you know you get the sort of to jump out of rugby and into um, Louis Figo and hair dye. <laughs> you know, it's it's here's a famous footballer, and look, he's got <laughs> he's wearing and it's laughable for most people, but actually, it's just like it's sort of you know that's not what it's about. Yeah. So in rugby, you quite often rugby's particularly difficult. I mean, I've I've watched rugby since I was a school kid. I used to play it, not very well. Um, although you know, I underestimate sometimes my own ability. But <laughs> it's you know, I had a, I had a sidestep. I had absolutely no pace whatsoever. But a lovely sidestep, and and uh, well, you know, I'm going off 
going off on a tangent there. But yeah, so I thing. sort of know rugby, but I understand realistically, I watch a game and I understand about 40% of it. You know, once the ball's in a ruck or once there's, you know, the ref decisions and the TMO and what they're talking about, I have no idea. And I was talking to, to Martin Bayfield, who does know a lot about rugby mm. um, recently. And he doesn't understand everything that's going on either. And he says that the players don't. So there's a sort of, you know, that's a inherent problem. It's it's interesting because there's stuff that you want to learn about. But it's a really difficult sport, rugby. So to try and, you know, talk to both of those audiences to get back to your point about why is so much of the creative around rugby quite conservative, that's mm. probably the reason. Yeah. But, I mean, I think that, I don't think that's that conservatism is... Um... Is exclusive to rugby. I think. I mean, I'm talking more in the context of a, a major event where you've got to produce a message that works in a lot of different settings. You know, it could be a brake bumper around the broadcast. It could be just a message that someone's going to see at the side of the pitch, or it could be something. And it, but it has to scale up then to something that works as maybe two, three, four, five minutes on YouTube, and you know, uh, full length ads and commercial breaks and experiential stuff near the grounds and everything else. And I suppose that's, that's quite a difficult thing to, to take a nuanced message and as a, as the platform for that. Yeah. So you've difficult. got these three things that you've got the, you've got the, you've got rugby, you've got the, you know, what is it saying about us, about the brand is that, you know, and what's, what is the inherent sort of insight that you're working on and, and who's the audience that you're talking to all of that stuff that is fundamental to marketing, um, then when you lay across Japan and rugby, um, and as you say, the, the dreaded moment is when someone in the room says, uh, okay, we need to ladder this up and down, you know, <laughs> and everyone sort of, and that, you know, they say that with our irony as well. So, you know, you're sort of thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming there's a secret camera in here somewhere, and to, you know, this is all a uh, some sort of um, piss take, but actually, what they're trying to do is is use the rugby sponsorship, the assets that they bought, um, and those could be players, it could be hospitality, it could be, as you say, experiential things around and you know the venue um, or in city centres. So you start to then sort of bring more and more people in, and you then start to say, right, okay, at an agency level, it's going beyond purely an advertising creative solution to to lots of different agencies coming in and and then if you then transpose that into the you know if you if you generalize for a moment that's where the network solution for agencies is supposed to work you're supposed to get you know this sort of all of these different skill sets and bits of expertise in and focus on the that problem mm. um that sometimes works i'm here to tell you um and and sometimes it doesn't um, but, uh, yeah, so it, you're right in that in an ideal world, you, the, 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 and if sports marketing was all that agencies did, then, um, you could use all the assets and then sort of bring them in and, and dial them up and down, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but quite often that doesn't work because you get crowding out by, by certain constituencies who want to sort of use one particular asset over another. And blah, yeah. Blah. Let's get back to the, the kind of tournament in Japan. Obviously, you're not there. I'm not there. Not currently. Are you, have you got plans to get out to, to the World Cup? No, I was offered. Um, ah. I was offered, but I just couldn't get there. So, yeah. Um, you know, it's one of those where, yeah, well, well it's, I, just, I, I say that purely because I, I just want people to know I'm the sort of person that gets offered <laughs> tickets to the Rugby World Cup. That's, that's, the, that's the whole point of that sentence. <laughs> great that's on record now um but obviously a lot of people are there despite the distance from uh rugby's heartlands here in europe and even from um australia new zealand and certainly from places like argentina and the u.s which apparently have had um quite a lot of visiting fans Four hundred thousand roughly supporters are expected to make the trip to japan over the next few weeks uh and they will have bought between them around 600,000 tickets, which is about one in three. 
rugby has a touring culture. Are you just reeling these off the top of your head or have you got some sort of note system? Uh, Very impressive. I'm just writing well, them down. Yeah. It's an audio experience, so people <laughs> don't need to know either way. But <laughs> the, the secrets. Yeah. The, um, you know, rugby has a touring culture. And is that, is that a big part of what has made the Rugby World Cup um, what it is, despite the fact that, you know, obviously countries like Japan are having a growing influence on the sport. But up to this point, it has been a handful of mostly former Commonwealth countries and France who've, who've been involved in the game in a serious way. Yeah. Okay. So what we're we're getting into big eventer territory here, aren't we? Yeah. So we're, we're in terms of who are these four hundred thousand people and how many of them actually you know go to rugby? How many of them will uh, you know are are core avids or you know people who are who are define themselves as being rugby fans and go on a on a weekly basis to their local club? And how many of them just like a party? And rugby is a you know is a is a sport that's done well out of the big eventer. The World Cup itself, you know, they are a, a key sort of demographic in every in every major sort of rugby territory. They those are the people that, you know, they're they're wealthy enough to buy tickets. It's going to cost a lot of money to get there, stay there, and drink as much beer as they do. So you've got um, they're an important element to the whole thing. And from a from a world rugby perspective, as in the you know the governing body whose basic job is to is to fill those stadia and and you know that's that's the the start and the end of the conversation there is obviously a sort of a question about that balance between rugby and the party um i think interestingly i think sevens you know the the sevens has been sort of held back a little bit in terms of because it, because of just the nature of it's a party you know come to get pissed and and you know there's rugby going on yeah that's always been how sevens has been sold since you know from the hong kong sevens you know down and that's both great if you're selling tickets but it also you know causes issues in terms of well how many people in the stadium know what's going on blah 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 and again how much education needs to take place to 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 talk to those to those people and the other bit is well how much of a legacy you're going to leave in in terms of the world cup because if if these people aren't going to go and you know if they're not the next generation of rugby fans they're just people who are like a party and going to watch the rugby world cup this this month, they were at the Cricket World Cup last month. They'll be at, you know, the Euros next summer. Um, that's fine. But they're a sort of floating constituency of affluent people who just go from major event to major event. And if yeah. sport is only targeting them, and if they can, if the rights holder thinks, well, that's where all the money's going to come from, um, you know, won't anyone think of the children? You know, it's that <laughs> sort of argument. Is there, what about people who actually like rugby and are priced out of it? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic generally with, with rugby support because, you know, if you look at the scale of, of the Six Nations audience here in the UK, for example, um, that is many multiples greater than club tournaments that are going on at the same time. There's not the same kind of parity between that you see in, in Premier League football and in top league football around Europe and around, around the world with international games, um, you know, and whether that is in part because... Um, of its complexity as a sport, but its simplicity as a spectacle, um, or whatever reasons there are for that that, that make it appealing uh, on that kind of casual basis, I'm not going to get into too much just now. But, you know, it's a definitive feature of, of, of big tournaments like this. Yeah, it is, yeah. I mean, the other the other bit to it is the, si the size of the rugby audience is what has attracted CVC and, you know, this. The, there's a... the out the, Going on around, you asked at the beginning about what the... My take on this rugby world cup is and actually mm. beyond the playing field there is a great deal going on it feels like a moment you know and and it's not just obviously me saying that i'm taking that from lots of other people but it seems like a gareth davis the old um, wales fly half and and said that it feels like the the, the big biggest moment since it went pro in 95 mm. um and it does a bit because there are so many different things happening if you go back to 95 just as a as a point of reference the the rugby world cup in south africa with which is obviously famous for that picture and that that image of uh, francois pinar and and uh, nelson mandela um which was incredibly powerful behind the scenes there was all sorts of shenanigans going on trying to sort of uh, gain control of rugby and kerry packer 
was was trying very hard to to do for rugby what he did for cricket a decade earlier so or two decades earlier so you've got all of you know rugby has always been interesting to very rich either individuals and now we're seeing cvc which is obviously a venture capital company made a great deal of money i said massive amount of money out of formula one and is now as we all know going and buying and investing in in rugby properties yeah and that's feels like it's going to change the nature of the game and i don't think anyone is completely clear in terms of how and what it actually means but the very fact that that it's happening feels um at the same time you've got the sort of this very fragile sort of base particularly the southern hemisphere teams and you know when you look at new zealand which is the sort of iconic brand of this the ferrari of the whole thing that's a very fragile economy that that's that you know that that's based on and if these uh, if venture capital is the is the route forward and it's it's obviously part of the future for for sport and particularly at an elite level um how that plays out is going to be really interesting and i'm not sure what 2023 in france will look like it might yeah. well look from a surface from the fans perspective very very similar but it feels like behind the scenes it's probably going to look quite different yeah absolutely so i mean just cvc's latest adventures in uh, in rugby investment obviously they've, they've already done the partnership with with premiership rugby in in england and are moving closer they're in a period of uh, exclusive negotiations with six nations rugby am i right in that yes that's right. Um, and then at the same time, you've had World Rugby has kind of attempted this counter proposal of a, a global nations championship that kind of keeps all the, the big 10, um, six nations and the rugby championship teams on side, um, brings them into something a bit more coherent um, outside of those tournaments. And, you know, offers again, a kind of sealed commercial environment for everybody to, to prosper in. And they've for various reasons, one being that, you know, they have dependence outside of that collection of countries. They those plans haven't haven't come to fruition. But it definitely does feel like something is gonna happen and it's gonna be an external force that does it, whether it's C V C or another investor. I mean the the again the interesting thing that's at play is that the things that have their roots in high profile amateur rugby have proven to be really quite resilient. The Lions tour, for example, which doesn't make very much sense in the context of a professional era competition. You know, you have one Southern Hemisphere team against four Northern Hemisphere teams, three of whom are among the favourites for this year's Rugby World Cup, um, mm. all coming together. You know, it, it doesn't make sense in that respect because it has all this heritage that's easily accessible to people. You know, that, that it's proved to be incredibly popular still. At the same time, the professional club game has relatively shallow roots. People aren't as attached to their club sides. Obviously, there are big communities that have, have sprung up around them in, in different countries, but people aren't as attached to those as they would be to a, a football team that's been around since the 1880s, for example. Yeah, and that it's the same question in 95 applies, you know, in terms of, well, you, you know, if you, were, if you were creating the international rugby colour, you wouldn't start here. You know, mm. so one thing about venture capitalists, you know, you, what you've got to say for them is that at least their motives are clear. You know, they, <laughs> there is that they are there for money. And, and obviously the governing bodies have got broader, more nuanced um, objectives. And that's very complex, you know, whether CVC is around for the, the concussion conversations or whether it's around for the grassroots, who knows? And one of the one of the things that people who know about this sort of stuff tell me is that they need you know venture capital craves straight lines mm. and you know whether or not it formula one love it or hate it they bought something that was just a cash generating machine and you know they were able to they bought it for two billion in 2006 and sold it i think for eight billion but along the line along the way they made you know what's reported to be about 14 billion in fees and share sales and dividends and that's a return of over 300%. So you've got like a you know that's the model and and formula 1 is different than rugby but if the question then becomes well how do we turn rugby this popular thing 
into um, a version of Formula One or something that is recognizable, not just as a sport, but as an, as an, an investment opportunity. Mm. Now, that's some of the things that you're talking about there, the Lions Tour being a classic example, might be collateral damage. And I agree with you that the Lions Tour has always been seen as this sort of, you know, almost an, you know, an anachronism in the professional era, but actually it's fantastic and people love it. Now, is the cost of losing the Lions Tour, which is not a certainty by any means, but is that a cost worth paying for, you know, a, a, an international calendar that makes sense and that everyone gets paid um, in a way that, that allows sort of competitive um, uh, balance? I don't know. I don't. I mean, that's going to be a heck of a heck of a journey. All I know is that CVC or you know others. There's two two things. One good thing to say is that, as you said, change doesn't happen from within. Rugby's not going to disrupt itself, and it's not going to sort of create um, a harmonised season and narrative on its own. It's going to come from a third party, and money will talk. And CVC has a lot of it or, you know, borrows a lot of it to use, to, to, to spend elsewhere. So that's one, one issue. But the other one is, is, you know, quite often, you know, what happens if, for example, Amazon come in for the rights to a new world rugby competition? You know, what happens then? The rights fee would be high, but how many people would be able to watch it? Would the Six Nations remain free to air, pay-per-view? What would happen to the, to the sort of British Lions? Would the best players perform often enough? Can they perform often enough to make these things viable? There's loads of questions there. I have no idea what the answers are. Yeah. But as I say, every sports rights holder is balancing the ones lucky enough to have commercial agendas. They have they are balancing the commercial agenda with the the broader agenda of their sport. And creating sort of this is what a hundred feels like it's about in cricket, creating something that is investable. Something you know that's that is new and stands aside from the heritage products is probably where venture capital will will have its most or uh, the easiest entry point. Yeah, um, because then they can say, well, look, this is a new thing, and it's like IPL. It's created, it's here, and look, you can invest in it, and um, but you don't have to worry about everything else that's gone before. So, yeah, sport does you know has obviously a, is a is a sort of has done this throughout its history. Premier League is, is, you know, the Champions League. These are all things that were created. And now the appetite from venture capital seems to be higher. It was always, oh, a media company will come in and fund it or a brand will come in and fund it. But now it's looking like private money, private equity. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we, we're seeing that in repeatable patterns in varying degrees in, in different sports. And I think what's probably going to have the biggest influence in, in terms of how all of that plays out is, is what exists at the moment. You know, football is not immune to it. You're seeing weaknesses in areas that you didn't think would have existed five or ten years ago, um, whether it's existing competitions like the Premier League or the Champions League or what have you, or the balance between international and club football that always feels settled until somebody sees an opportunity to make money somewhere else. You know, and, and the balance between international competitions and leagues is also going to be something that is refracted and, and, and you know, develops in, in various different ways. In, in various well, I mean, different the, other, the question is, 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 are they all aiming for the same people? We talked about the big eventers on, you know, mm. that's whether they turn up to watch or whether they pay to watch on via, you know, as a media product. Um, then you are pitching sport against sport and you are looking at not just, you know, rights holder against rights holder within a sport all of these these questions, whether or not there is a there's a now a big rush to to go from a you know to de, direct to consumer um, and OTT etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Now all of that is predicated on there is someone on the other side that is going to pay for this. That when you reach the customer, he's going to she's going to pay for your um, to watch your Formula One race or your rugby match or your football game, um, and we don't know the answer to that. Yeah, because that's in most cases largely untried because the broadcasters have taken the risk on that on the whole. And if CVC or rugby's idea is that you're going to create something and go direct to consumer, um, I don't know, it could work, couldn't it? It could be a, a, a fantastic moment in rugby's history and, and um, we get into 
the sort of long tail of rugby and everyone is paying up for for the for the product directly it, it yeah. could work but it's a that's a heck of a risk yeah are there any lessons in um in rugby's transition in the mid 90s to, to professionalism and, and seeing off this kind of packer style buyout that that was you know mooted more widely at the time than we probably appreciated or from other sports from um how other sports have have try to build new properties into their uh into their competitive landscape or is this is the nature of this something different is it something that we haven't really seen before that could kind of subsume it no i think the the the, the, you've got money so you're looking at incentives here and if you're talking to rugby players whose careers are getting shorter by the year and you've got two levers you've got money and you've got history and if I'm a kid growing up in New Zealand, Australia, England, Scotland, Wales. What do I want to do? What do I want to be? And who owns the biggest lever? Now, is it that I want to make an enormous amount of money? Or is it that I want to lift the World Cup in an Australian shirt? Or I want to play for New Zealand and be an all-black? I want to you know, play for Ireland and win the World Cup for Ireland. Now, those questions... Obviously, uh, when you pare it down to this is you get into lawyer territory. This is all about intellectual property, isn't it? So the the rights holders will have their intellectual property that those that that is that creates the greatest incentive. They want to wear that shirt and they want to hold that trophy, um, which is happening in the you know which is what we're seeing at the World Cup. Now, if all of that uh, plays out, there are plenty of examples, and of I remember into talking to Owen Morgan. I was working in Ireland at the time and I was the cricket correspondent for the Irish Times and Owen was 16 and a very, very, obviously, very promising cricketer. Now, the, I remember asking him, well, what do you want to do? Are you going to be a 2020 player or are you going to be a... This is before the IPL. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, I'm going to be a... I want to be a, you know, a, a tour of the world as a 2020 cricketer. And this was... He was 16 and, and so... And that was purely because Ireland didn't have any heritage. There was nothing... There was no history that he was getting beyond now obviously he's played for england and he's captain england the world cricket world cup final but he's also basically made his living as a as a touring individual cricketer playing mm-hmm. for teams that didn't exist when he made that statement in 2006 so it's very hard to to say that these things won't happen yeah if you come along to a guy at who's 22 and probably has another five years in in the or you know in a in a career of incredible sort of uh, pressure in terms of rugby physical pressure um and say right here is a shed load of money um come and come and join our circus then it's this it's a pretty strong argument isn't it yeah yeah well all that lies ahead anyway what do you what are you looking forward to from the next few weeks what what do you hope to see from the rugby world cup this time i want to understand what's going on i want to see fantastic rugby and it would be lovely to get to the end of the tournament and people say yeah I'm going to really go back and you know get involved in rugby in some shape or form um I've I've or kids of you know the classic sort of kids are now energized to go and join their their local clubs etc etc which is the bit that in you know when we chunter on about the sports business mm. quite often that bit gets is assumed or left behind and it, it's not just a you know a two-week party or a three-week party that causes that it's a load of hard work by people who don't get enough credit um for creating the structures to help those people get into whatever it is whether it's local clubs or schools or whatever the the, the, the way forward is or just people more interested in taking up the sport that would be yeah. great and it's an yeah. obvious thing to say um and you know i think there's a sort of from a from a sports marketing perspective which is the audience of this podcast there is a lot of okay we'll move on to the next event and this one you know will have had its moment it will have it will have established in the minds of of investors sponsors broadcasters one way or the other they'll say yeah that was great we'll do that again and we'll we'll you know we'll spend the money again and the cycle continues or they'll say, no, there's something else going lurking here. Let's go and try another sport. So that's always the 
the worry and the concern for for people like Brett Gosper, yeah. who is sitting on top of this sort of this great party. He's at the centre of that, and he's got you know he's got a very full inbox, isn't he? Yeah, one, thing, one thing you can say about Brett, we we I remember in the past saying he had great hair, and he still has great hair, <laughs> but uh, he's also got a full inbox. Great hair and a full inbox. That's your that's your title. Yeah, yeah. What what would mark a successful tournament? Um, England winning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it needs someone other than the All Blacks to win. Personally, I think that because we don't want monopolies are bad, and they're, they're it's they've won the last three or two. Two. So this is three on the go. Um, and it just needs a sort of new, probably a new cast of characters and no one to get hurt. That's the baseline for everything in life, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> Avoid pain. Right. Thanks very much, Richard. That was uh, very enjoyable. Everybody, please do uh, be sure to uh, have a listen to, to the Unofficial Partner podcast. Yeah, or um, subscribe, subscribe via unofficialpartner.com. It's... Uh, it's 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 a brilliant podcast, but far better than this one. Great, great. Um, <laughs> until next time, until the next kind of Flintstones Jetsons crossover uh, <laughs> podcast, uh, Richard. I will I will leave it there. But thanks very much for coming on. Thank you very much. Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital, and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news, and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with Sports Pro. Welcome back to the Sports Pro podcast. Thanks again to Richard Gillis for his time. Uh, we've had the unofficial take on Rugby World Cup 2019. We're going to get a slightly more official view in this part with uh, just a few minutes from an interview we did a few months back with Alan Gilpin, the Chief Operating Officer of World Rugby and the Head of Rugby World Cup. Um, more Rugby World Cup coverage as well on sportspromedia.com. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, there is a full commercial guide to the 2019 competition covering every team, every sponsor, all the major TV deals, all the key commercial uh, and development activities being undertaken by the competing unions. Uh, it's your cutout and keep guide. You'll have to print it out first. But um, all that you need to know to get up to speed uh, with what's going on in Japan, uh, sportspromedia.com, of course, where you will also find a feature from Michael Long, who, of course, was in Japan earlier in the summer. Uh, he spoke to local organisers there about the work that's gone in to bringing Asia's first Rugby World Cup to life. Uh, do check that out as well. A couple of other notices for you before we head on to our interview with uh, Alan Gilpin. Uh, reminder, if you want to be at the Sports Pro OTT Summit in Madrid, that's happening from the 19th to the 21st of November. And as ever, featuring the highest calibre of speakers and attendees from across the world of digital broadcasting, uh, including representatives from the NBA, from Sky, YouTube, WWE, uh, House of Highlights, BN, the IOC and the Olympic Channel. Um, we've got confirmation now we're, we're going to be joined by the ECB, Dan Porter, the, the chief executive of Overtime, who's got some quite bracing views about the future of digital media. Uh, Formula One will be there, ITV, Facebook, European Tour. It's going to be another packed house, another unmissable event in the Spanish capital. Uh, Sportspro-ott.com for details of how you can be there. Um, also, there's been a short extension to the deadline for entries to the Sportspro OTT Awards, celebrating the pioneers of sports broadcasting across eight different categories. If you think your work should be recognised, you have until the 27th of September that is just a couple of days away as we're speaking, so you're going to need to get your skates on. But sportspro-ottawards.com is where you'll find out all the information you need uh, to enter. So there you go. So that's the world of OTT. Uh, the world in union has been the focus this week. And a few months ago, um, we spoke with Alan Gilpin, and he gave us some insights into what it's been like uh, putting together Japan's first Rugby World Cup, first Rugby World Cup, outside a top-tier nation 
first in Asia. It's been a fascinating challenge uh, and it's going to be a fascinating few weeks. We're all going to be looking forward to it. Hope you are too. A reminder as ever, if you are enjoying the Sports Pro podcast, to share and like our output on social media. Do subscribe to the podcast on your preferred channel. And if you're so minded, do leave us a positive review as well. Uh, I'll leave you with Alan Gilpin and look forward to speaking with you again next time. Alan Gilpin, Chief Operating Officer and Head of Rugby World Cup at World Rugby. What opportunities have been created by bringing the Rugby World Cup to Japan? Yeah, look, good question. I, the, the journey actually started sort of 10 years ago. Actually, Japan were awarded the, the hosting rights for, for Rugby World Cup 2019 on the same day that England were awarded for, mm-hmm. for 2015. So in, in July 2009, Japan had bid for Rugby World Cup twice previously to that. So even that part wasn't new to them. I think you know, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a new sport in Japan, rugby. It's been played in Japan for a long time. They've been in every Rugby World Cup, but it's not a sport, obviously, that has taken a hold in Japan the same way that football or baseball have. And so I think we knew there was a great opportunity to develop the sport in Japan mm-hmm. by taking Rugby World Cup there and by you know using that to really excite them. And, and just as importantly, having Rugby World Cup in Asia for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I suppose taking the decision to get outside of just playing Rugby World Cup in the same rugby strongholds. And that's that's all about using Rugby World Cup as, as that opportunity to grow the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we're seeing through Rugby World Cup, particularly in 2015, through Rugby Sevens and Olympic Games you know, in Rio in 2016, and looking forward to Tokyo 2020, is those moments are the things that can really excite fans. What's your experience of working in Japan been like? Different, yeah. and, and different types of challenges, but not... Um, but not anything that stopped it, you know, being a building towards a great success, and, mm. and, and it certainly is. And we're really, you know, we're in a great place with 130 something days to go, mm-hmm. um, where there's a great amount of confidence in Japan, huge demand for tickets, so we know we're going to be playing these games in front of full venues. Um, there's a lot of excitement with our international kind of broadcast uh, partners and, and with our, our sponsors and, and partners. So, you know, on all those measures where we are now is, is, is in a good place. Get, getting to that point has been different than it would have been when we did this in France or in New Zealand or, or in England for 2015. Um, different political landscape, uh, very different uh, sporting commercial landscape, I think, if, if that makes sense. But um, I think, you know, for us, it's been about working with those different stakeholders as partners to approach whatever the challenge is in a different way and probably find a different sort of solution. But... Um, but they've been really engaged. They've been great to work with. It's a fascinating, as you've seen, fascinating mm-hmm. place to uh, to be hosting a big event. And I think. What have been the main challenges of getting the tournament up and running? I think what we've managed to do over time is is learn and adjust mm-hmm. and adapt ourselves. And I think that you know that that's probably a lesson for us to take forward a little bit as well as as hopefully we do take our our competitions to different parts of the world. Is that what might work in? a very traditional rugby territory like a New Zealand or a France or England doesn't necessarily work in a Japan and probably wouldn't work in Brazil or Argentina mm-hmm. or other places that we, we hope to be in the future. So that need to adapt and be flexible ourselves has definitely been important in yeah. Japan. I think it's been important to be where we are successfully now. Like any tournament, I think we, in terms of what keeps us awake at night, and again, it doesn't now, but it might have done at different points along the way, making sure the experience for the players and the teams mm-hmm. is the best it can be. Mm-hmm. Now, ultimately, for us, the measure of the tournament is the quality of the product, the quality of the rugby on the field. And so making sure the team camps, the team hotels, everything the teams need is in place. Japan hasn't hosted major international events for, for a long time, since FIFA World Cup in 2002. So making sure they understood what was required was a really important phase. Um, and we've come through that really well and they've brought the right expertise on at the right times delivering what we need for the broadcast and media to mm-hmm. cover the tournament internationally is really important yeah. because, again, the World Cup for us is the opportunity to really project the sport. Mm. Uh, we, need, we need that to work internationally. So, again, that's, those have been the, the, the sort of parts of the journey that have been challenging but successful. Now, as we move into very much operational delivery phase, the, you know, the things that are probably most front of mind in terms of planning for... Uh, the tournament are typhoons, earthquakes. What do we do with some of the things that you can't mm. predict, but you've got to have a plan in place for? And that's what we're really focused on now is 
is really kind of planning around those scenarios. How has the tournament shaped up from a commercial and ticketing perspective? I mean, there's an incredible spread of, yeah. of, of ticket interest around the globe. And mm. some of them, the sort of territories that are highest demand, like Australia, you'd expect. Some others where there's been really big demand for international tickets mm. um, are less probably obvious, like the USA, for example, mm. which is really kind of high on that list. So yeah. that's really pleasing, I think, from a sort of global tournament perspective and reflective of the way the sport's growing around the world. I think from a commercial perspective, it's gone really well. It, it wasn't all tied down in advance, which... Um, maybe felt like we were, we were carrying some risk on that you know, a number of years ago. I think on the sponsorship side, we've been very lucky that we've got, at the worldwide level, six very uh, loyal partners who've been with us across a number of tournaments mm -hmm. and therefore weren't looking at this as a, does Japan work? They know Rugby World Cup is a great partnership for them. They're great partners for us. And this is just part of that ongoing journey. So that's really pleasing and and the way they've, they've engaged with the sort of local organising committee and the local market's good. Mm -hmm. From a broadcast perspective, you know, you're, in, you're in those issues of time zones and what that means for different broadcasters. But again, I think we're fortunate to have some really loyal broadcast partners who've been with us a long time and get all of those aspects of, of the World Cups and we're able to schedule matches that work for them in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, so commercially, we'll come out of this you know, with a, in, a, in a really good place as we look forward then to, to France in 2023. And Are the current tensions an inevitable result of rugby's growth as a sport? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, from our perspective, you know, there's the pure, if you like, the, the game side of the sport and making sure that what we're presenting, again, to, to hopefully a, a growing audience and a growing participation base is a sport that's safe to play and that, that parents want boys and girls to play. Um, and, and there's that hearts and minds battle uh, around how we present the sport and, and cover the sport and manage the sport and then it, alongside that there are as you say there are the challenges of different parts of the world and different competitions being to different levels of development and it's inevitable I guess to some extent that when you've got some that are in very very professionalized very developed competitions including club competitions where there's been big investment um, that anything that might threaten that will be seen to threaten that it's going to be to some extent resisted and I think getting past that point and making everyone realize that the the tide rises for everyone together and that everyone will, will see the benefit of that is, is being what we've... That's the How important is Sevens to the strategy of growing the sport? Sevens is a great opportunity to harness a, a, probably a new audience more quickly than Fifteens just by virtue of being a game that's easier to understand um, to, a, to a new fan. So the, the next challenge for us as an organisation and, and a sport to capitalise on that opportunity is how you cover Sevens from a television, digital, social perspective and really maximising that, that audience opportunity. And Tokyo 2020 and the reach that Olympic Games gives is, is definitely a big part of that mm. opportunity. So we're already working you know, pretty hard on the presentation of the HSBC 7 series, men's and women's, for the future cycle so that that new audience has the content to, to follow afterwards. Yeah. Um, you know, and again... So Sevens is that opportunity both from a participation and an audience perspective and you know, our work now is to, is to help build yeah. on that.